0: This is a career channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/careers for videos, employment news and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment.
1: Hello and welcome to The Pulse: Issues in Healthcare. I'm Leslie Bruce, your host and the Director of Healthcare Leadership and Community Outreach for UC San Diego Extension. Today's guest is Paul Hedgie, the new CEO of the San Diego County Medical Society. Welcome, Paul.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Delighted, delighted. I know um, one of the first things I want to talk to you about is your career in education. Um, We have so many students, of course, here uh, at UCSD, both undergrad and seasoned professionals who are in our master's degree programs who are interested in your career and they'd be interested in the educational choices you made along the way. (laughs) So let's explore those first starting way at the beginning um, which was of course your bachelor's in government at Cal State Sacramento. What made you interested in working in and with government?
2: Well it goes far back before that and and I chuckled a little because uh, you referenced choices and I don't know that I considered all of them having a choice or not Some, sometimes life happened um i was going even further back to high school i was in a, a math science magnet program in sacramento in high school uh and and my my skill set my you know academic success was certainly on that line I, I was i was a math guy uh and uh i intended to go to school to be an engineer Uh, And I had planned on that since about fifth grade. I knew I was going to be an engineer from fifth grade. And that had continued all the way through high school. Uh, I graduated with very high GPA, really good SAT scores. Um, And I ended up going to school at the University of Rochester in upstate New York. Um, It was was very cold. Um, But I'm originally from Brooklyn. And I wanted to go back east. Uh, And frankly, some of my last two choices were Rochester and NYU. Um, And I decided... Rochester brought me out there. They did a good sales pitch. They let me visit the campus. It's beautiful, old brick school, only 4,800 undergrads, you know, 6,000 total students. So it was a nice community uh, as well as a great program. Um, and I, I started college as an optics major. At the time, Rochester was one of only three schools in the country that had an undergraduate program in optics, so applied physics in their engineering department. Um, so I really went to school as a techie. And very quickly that changed. I got involved in campus pol. I got involved in a fraternity. I got involved in fraternity politics right away. I was fraternity's representative to the interfraternity council. I was interfraternity council's representative to the school cabinet, and so I got involved in student body politics. And I put together that some even my further back experience, having been in ROTC in high school uh, and having been second in command of my unit. Um, that I was much more interested in kind of that, those leadership opportunities in public policy. Mm. Uh, and then something dramatic happened. And, and at this point, I was a declined to state. Well, I wasn't even 18 yet. I wasn't registered to vote. But but I was on my way to becoming a decline to state voter, kind of really unsure what to do. Uh, and in that spring, um, President Nixon passed away. Mm. And it gave me a, a point. It was a point of inflection in my life where I realized, you know what? I want to go into politics. I want to do that. And I switched my major to politics at the end of my freshman year. And then my parents said they were going to stop paying for my private school. Mm. So I bit the bullet and went back to engineering. And uh, that didn't work out because I wasn't really passionate about it anymore. And mm-hmm. it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of homework and a lot of working together to get through those things. And I just didn't have that that same passion anymore. Um, so after another year of that, I came home. I did community college for a few years. I got an AA in computer science Uh, and then I went to Sac State to go finish my bachelor's degree in computer science and I got involved in student politics again, Ah. (laughs) representing the engineering school at the time. But, but that passion lit back up for me again and I quickly (laughs) changed majors. I was within a year of my computer science degree, changed majors to, to government and political science at Sac State. They call it government, uh, to be a little more on the practical end and reflect that. Um, and quickly got involved in that. I was very involved in, in student politics at a statewide level. Um, and then uh, towards the end, I interned at the state capitol and, and graduated with my degree in government.
1: Well, and that reminds me, I was going to ask you, so how did you go, you know, students are always interested in the transition, the segue from academia to actually work, earning a living. And, you know, wonder how did you get an opportunity to work work in government after school?
2: I I was fortunate, and I did it during school. And there was an internship program that the CSU system runs for all CSU students statewide, uh, in uh, undergrad CSU students statewide. C- CSU Sacramento organizes it, um, and it pl- helps place you in an office in the Capitol. It's in it's a, a near full time. It's a full time uh, intern program. Twenty four. Uh, I think a minimum 24 hours a week in the office plus some class seminar time so it was a full semester of credit for this um, and you got a chance to go work for for five months in the state capital Um, so I I took part in that program but there's a million internship programs and opportunities for for undergrads and for grads Mm -hmm. Um, but I really think that practical experience in being in an office is critical and I don't think uh, you learn a lot in the academic part and background, but you need those practical applications because they're they're different and they're, there are times that both relate, but you need those practical things and the relationships.
1: Oh, absolutely! And so, is that when you worked with the uh, San Diego members Shirley Horton and Mark Wyland, or, so or was that later? That's
2: exactly right. I started as an intern in Mark Wyland's office, um, his first year in in, in the State Assembly, okay. um, and in that role. Um, I moved up. I volunteered for a lot of other political activities while I was in his office, mm-hmm. going to party conventions, um, going to walk precincts for other members who were running for office in special elections, all kind of organized by Mark or by his chief of staff, uh, Dwayne DeCara. And then they put me on, you know, before, just before I graduated, a spot opened in the office and I was offered that position. So I, I joined the paid staff. Um, And then a number of months later, I was asked to, or was offered the chance to move down to the district office, and that's the first time I moved to San Diego, uh, working for Mark Weiland. Uh, My last day in the state capitol was September 1st, 2001, or September 11th, 2001. Mm. I never made it to my desk, actually. Uh, They ended up evacuating the capitol on September 11th as I was on my way to the office.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, What happened then?
2: Um, mostly everybody got together and watching the news and it was just very tense. We, mm-hmm. we, I met up with, with then assemblyman Wyland Mark, and our chief of staff and a few other members. Um, and we went to a, a local restaurant that had TVs on, mm-hmm. watched the news for a few hours, went to a hotel, watched it for more and, and mm-hmm. we fretted, you know, oh, we were yeah, worried sure. about, uh, the future and, and where our country was going.
1: I, I completely understand. And I, um, I understand that even after working for so many elected officials, that um, even with the danger that we now came to know, you even ran for state assembly yourself.
2: I did. I Tell did. us about that. Um, so after you know a, a while into my career, I was I moved back after a few years in here in San Diego. Uh, I did almost a year in Orange County, a year in, in Missouri, in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I moved back uh, to where I had grown up, Sacramento, and I was a chief of staff uh, for another member whose campaign I had run, uh, Van Tran from Orange County. Uh, and I was his chief of staff in the Capitol for uh, a number of years. And, and during that time working for him, the uh, I was meeting with a friend of mine who was a political director um, for um, Ed Voice, which is a... a education reform lobby mm-hmm. um and a friend of mine paul mitchell was a political director at the time and he he and i were just comparing notes on different races that were going to be coming up over the next two years we were really early in the election cycle you and gotta we plan get, ahead and we, we get down to to ad 10 and i m- make a crack that i live in that district and and that i wanted to run for office sometime and he said why don't you think about doing it now and i i said well who's running for it now And we kind of looked at the names and It looked like there was an opportunity there, and there was a lot of stuff that I wanted to do, and um, I particularly was interested. This was right after the 06 election, and I was really frustrated with that by how badly Republicans had done, and I thought Republicans deserved, in California particularly, a lot of... Um, the blame for how bad they were doing. And I, I felt like the party was being the party of no at the time mm-hmm. and that Republicans had to do a better job of offering different ideas. Mm-hmm. Not just saying no but offering counter proposals mm-hmm. um, and being optimistic and, and having a vision for the future um, that, that people and voters could buy into and I felt like the best way I could accomplish that at the time was running for office and hopefully getting a position to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I made the decision in early '07 to run Uh, It didn't work out well. Uh, Well, I didn't win, uh, but I enjoyed the experience quite a bit.
1: Well, I bet you learned a lot, too. It's one thing to be chief of staff and being behind the scenes and all, then putting yourself out there, really putting yourself out there on the line is very different.
2: So much more appreciation for the candidates that I've worked for and and the members that I've had, for the challenges and and just the the emotional feeling of having your name on the ballot and being in the spot. I mean, people don't—it's lessons For me, even now, running an association Mm -hmm. uh, and and understanding— some of the those dynamics mm-hmm. it's very yeah. different
1: and, and as I said I think it's brave but you know I mean not everybody realizes what they're getting into but I think it's a really brave step for people to make um, so after the assembly then you went to work at the California Medical Association which is of course the statewide professional association for physicians so tell us about your work there you were there five years
2: yeah so um, <coughs> my boss I, I'd come back to Sacramento back to California in November of '04, uh, as uh, Van was being sworn into the assembly, and I was his chief of staff um, until he was terming out in 2010. Uh, and this was a a big point in my life. For at this point, I would worked for him for nearly seven years, mm-hmm. um, and every other job I had 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 put more in the nine months to a year and a half phase. So I'd spent over half my career and, and a lot of my time uh, with Van, doing other projects on the side, running for office, among others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was forced with the deadline that he was terming out and i had to decide what i was going to do and i could go find a new member to work for um but the relationship working for a member is um it's special and Mm -hmm. you have to find the right person that you get along with well you can you can be the best chief of staff for one member and a terrible one for the others if your personalities don't mesh well Mm -hmm. and i was worried about being able to replace him um and i was i was Trying to decide if i could go should go into business for myself and i had some opportunities to do some political consulting or fundraising and others um, but then i had a friend offer me an opportunity to recruit me to the medical association and and the real big thing there was i knew a lot of people who work there uh and it's really important to me the people you work with are incredibly incredibly important to me i um, could not agree more some of my best friends are are people that i have worked with frankly most of my best friends If not all of them are people that I've worked with, Mm -hmm. Um, and that I want to be able to, I don't want I don't go to work just to work and then to live. That's work is part of my life, and those people that I'm going to be there with are that. And so when I was offered the position, I I frankly hadn't wanted to be a lobbyist. I I was avoiding that uh, throughout a lot of my career. I didn't think that was the path for me, uh, but the people outweighed that, And, and so I took a job at first as a lobbyist at CMA. Uh, And then luckily, in about five months, I got promoted to be political director, which was a little more on my skill set side. But but lobbying was was great and interesting, uh, In the time I got to do that as well.
1: And you ran the political action committee, you talk about that promotion, and you ran the political action committee at CMA. What specifically did that entail? And what did you and the physicians involved with that look for in political candidates who sought your support?
2: So running the political action committee is, I I think there's probably two main pieces to that. Um, It is both organizing and raising the money, um, because a lot of that money we would raise from physicians. So we would have to convince members Mm -hmm. to make a separate donation to the political action committee. Those donations are not tax deductible. They just have to give it up because they have to believe in the cause. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of that's designing direct mail, putting events together at our big conventions, um, using peer pressure and guilt to get different physicians oh, to participate. Th- those are the gifts uh, to keep on giving. <laughs> or organizing getting the money and then recommending it with physician approval how we spend that money. Um, and that becomes a really big part. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. both on incumbent candidates, people who are currently in office, but as well and more so on which ones to uh, support in different races and how much to support them. Um, and physicians... Uh, There's a lot of stuff. CMA takes position on, probably public position on over 200 pieces of legislation every year, Mm -hmm. just at the state level. Um, They look at over 500 bills. They take positions on over 200. So we're certainly not um, a single issue group. There's a broad breadth of issues. And there's no elected official that that supports CMA positions 100% of the time. Frankly, you know, there's a former CMA board trustee who's in the state Senate now, Richard Pan, mm-hmm. and I'm sure he disagrees with the CMA position here and there every now and then. Mm-hmm. It's a broad coalition. CMA is a broad coalition mm-hmm. of physicians uh, and not really, it's not a monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what CMA looks for when they're looking to support somebody um, is somebody who's open minded, somebody who's going to give, who's going to listen to physicians uh, about issues of public health. Um, about the healthcare system in general um, and, and is willing to hear those positions and then see where they're at on some of those issues and kind of base and then mix that with viability, um, their own, you know, how successful their campaign has been already. Um, and we tried to be very realist about that um, and not just support somebody because they're with us on all these different things, but make sure that they have a chance to win, that they fit their district mm-hmm. um, and kind of look at what their experience is.
1: Interesting. Um, Another thing that you did that I noticed at CMA was that you were credited for reversing downward membership trends. And I know that a lot of medical societies and associations experience that, um, the downward trends. And here you are credited with with reversing that. And so how did you do that?
2: Well, I... It's nice to get the credit. A, a lot of us were a part of that. And I, I had been to be fortunate to be the one who was uh, in charge of the department at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but this act and this led to, uh, I, I think, probably the biggest inflection point in my career um, since then. I, up to this point, I'd been in politics in one way or the other, working for an official, running campaigns um, and then at CMA being the political director there. Um, and while I was a political director at CMA, um, CMA had started a year or so earlier doing an annual survey of our members, do, using a political pollster to poll our own members to see what their issues of priority were um, and check on some specific different questions. Um, at the time, the Affordable Care Act was a big one that we would test every year to see where, where physicians were at and what their opinion was. Of the lawn problems they were having with it and things they liked about it mm-hmm. um, well my my boss, Dustin, the CEO, asked me to take a look at the previous year's poll to offer suggestions of any changes we make because working in politics, I looked at a lot of polling uh, as part of my job, and I looked at this poll and I came back with not only some suggestions but a, there was a host of knowledge in that poll about our members that wasn't really being utilized, uh, and I pointed these all all this out to him well. Over the next two or three months, um, he made some large staff changes. And all of a sudden, I took over the membership marketing communications departments, mm. as well as running political affairs for, for a while. But I really switched to what I would consider more an operational end of the membership association. Instead of being kind of a frontline advocate, mm-hmm. as I was running the PAC, I started taking over. And really, I think a lot of that changes to our use, our much better use of data. And targeting of members. Mm-hmm. And then we've since then we have learned how to um, convince different people of membership and realizing that membership isn't a one size fits all thing. Um, you know, San Diego Med Society, we have almost 5,000 total members. At CMA, they have something over 41, maybe nearly 42,000 members. But that membership, the reason for membership is different for different people. Uh, and you have to make sure to tailor. Both what you're delivering, the value that you're delivering for those members, and how to go pitch that, and how to convince people to be members. And mm-hmm. as an example, you know the the easiest example is to take say some of the large groups and membership for a permanente physician, for a sharp resteely physician. Their reason for being a member is going to be very different than that solo practicing ophthalmologist who hangs their own shingle and is running their own business. Mm-hmm. Um, there the you. Doing things to help them run their business is really what they need and are going to be looking for. They'll like the advocacy and the lobbying that you're doing, but they they know it's going to happen anyway even if they don't join. Mm-hmm. Um, they need some direct support. The bigger groups, a lot of the time what they're focusing on are those big picture things. And mm-hmm. if, if you talk to their business manager, they get the big advocacy of what's going on in Sacramento because they know you know one comma in law can cost them millions of dollars at times.
1: Sure, sure. Well, that's really interesting. And I know, um, you know, they talked in what I was reading about the, the membership trends or that utilizing innovative marketing. And then I noticed that you got a certificate in marketing.
0: <laughs> that- so,
1: you know, this is what we like to see, of course, At you know, at UCSD and I'm sure at other institutions that when people say, I need certain knowledge to do my job, I will, I will go get that.
2: And that was exactly it. And it was a partially... My, my boss, uh, Dustin, encouraged us and the senior staff particularly, he started bringing up, encouraging us to, to do some continuing education, to find ways to grow and expand our skill sets. Um, and partially, it's a personal thing. I realized that I, at this point, was the head of a marketing uh, operation with no professional marketing training. Mm-hmm. I had some related experience sure. in politics in running campaigns, and knowing how which to make is marketing, um, yeah. but I didn't have direct practical, and so going to get those skills and going to do that, um, and that led to, you know first I did the marketing stuff, and then I was encouraged to get my MBA. Um, and I did that as well to really get in-depth on, on both that and the other aspects of, of running the business.
1: So you were able then to g- complete an MBA while you were at CMA. Yeah. How did that work?
2: Uh, it was, uh, it, you know, I th- everybody tells you it's going to be a lot of work, and it was certainly a lot of work, and mm-hmm. it was a bit surprise of it. Um, I, and I was doing it in Los Angeles while I was living in Sacramento, living and working oh my in Sacramento. Um, so I was in an executive MBA program. Uh, I would fly down every other week. Mm-hmm. Um, for two years, two, for about 22 months. Uh, we had the summer off, so that was nice. You got a little bit of a break, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't continuous, but but it was a good amount of work. And luckily, I had an employer who was very supportive of it, um, who, you know, when you had uh, an exam coming up, if I needed to take a day off, that was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that would let me take Fridays off every other week. Um, our program required that you get a letter of recommendation from your supervisor mm-hmm. um, so that they would know that you're going to be taking off and not just calling in sick and, and hiding right, it. Right so, right, so they were aware of it, but, um, but it was very rewarding.
1: Well, I'll bet. I mean, I think it was wise of CMA to invest in you in that way. And of course, you're now leading the San Diego Regional Professional Association for Physicians after more than five years in your senior level position at the statewide organization. So what prompted you to make the change?
2: Uh, you know, there, there's a host of, of things. Um, first, as I kind of describe, in the last few years, my job has been much more on the operational side. Um, I've kept my hand a little in in the politics, and I still maintain those relationships. But I wasn't working day to day in in advocacy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my job. Um, the when the opportunity came up, now that I finished school and the opportunity here in San Diego came up, it seemed like a great chance to both fully use that degree fully use my MBA Mm -hmm. and be the one who's responsible for the business operations. But because we're the smaller local society, I also get to be the face of the association. And mm-hmm. I am the lead advocate um, organizing and working with my physicians who are, who mm-hmm. are the, the people on that. But on a day in and day out basis, uh, I get to effectively be, although I'm not a registered lobbyist, I get to be the lobbyist for the doctors. I mm-hmm. sit on lots of county commissions mm-hmm. and other boards uh, representing physicians and working on that day in and day out. So for me, it's kind of the best of both worlds. I get to – I'm the operations manager as well as the advocate. Uh, and then the, the third part was really important. I got to come back to San Diego.
1: Ah, you've got very good taste, I can <laughs> tell you that. Well, speaking of physician, let's talk about the issues that affect them. Um, what do doctors want specifically? What would you say are their chief concerns at this point?
2: You know, the, the, the thing doctors want is pretty simple sounding. And then in practice, it all gets very complicated. Doctors want the ability to take care of their patients, they want to be able to see a patient um, and come up with the best course of treatment for, with the patient and the physician to come up with um, plans and practices that will help either keep that person healthy or help make them make them healthy if they're not, mm-hmm. um, and help get them to a healthy point. The problem is, um, you know, we have. Insurance. we have regulations, we have a lot of red tape that all kind of get in the way of that. Sometimes very meaningful, you know, in very important ways um, and sometimes in ways that really kind of undermine the ability for a physician and patient to do. I mean, some of it's just absolute reality. Economics uh, of medicine and of treatment, um, you know, are, are very difficult. But what a physician really wants is the ability to see their patient and be able to recommend courses of care mm-hmm. um, that will either, you know, and result in a healthy relationship.
1: Excellent. Well, what are some of the specific issues that you and your physicians think are getting in the way? Um, you know, what kinds of specific issues are are you working on at this point?
2: Well, I, I, the ones we're working on in this point, let, let's talk a little about that. Well, first off, you know, you have a Medi-Cal system in California that is incredibly underfunded. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Medi-Cal, under the Affordable Care Act, uh, Medi-Cal roles are expanding greatly. Um, Many more people, and this is people who can't afford health care otherwise, are getting put on Medi-Cal roles, which comes funding from the federal government and funding from the states. The problem is um, the rates to actually see physicians, the rates to be treated in California are somewhere either... 48th or 49th worst in the country. Um, It is abysmal. Um, And so, people, patients are getting insurance theoretically. They're getting a card that says they're covered, but in in practicality, they're not insured because nobody's going to see them. Mm -hmm. Nobody's taking new patients of that type. They'll see an existing patient that they had who maybe lost their insurance and has switched to this. They'll keep going because they they tend to have a relationship there. Mm -hmm. Um, And they'll see existing patients on Medi-Cal that they've had, but getting new new physicians and new others to see you with that is really hard, and it's ridiculous that we're giving rates that low. Um, so there's a, there's a host of efforts and large coalitions working together uh, to push that. I think the biggest aspect of that right now uh, is a push this year to increase the tax on tobacco. Um, there's a large coalition, um, Save Lives California, that is pushing for a $2 uh, a pack increase to the tobacco tax. Right now, the tobacco tax in California uh, sits somewhere uh, in the mid 30s on the nas- compared to other states. Mm-hmm. Um, so, very pretty low compared to other states. A two dollar increase. The t- current tax is 86 or 87 cents a pack. A two dollar increase sounds huge, um, and it's not insignificant. But that would only put us in at about 12th in the nation. Um, so still behind and I think it would surprise most people that the t- tax on tobacco is so low compared to other I states. I think in it this would country.
1: especially when we've been such a pioneer for so long in the you know the fight against tobacco.
2: Exactly. And, and the tobacco tax does a few different things. First off, all of the all of the current data and studies <coughs> will tell you um, that the biggest uh, way to help prevent new smokers from starting is cost. <laughs> cost doesn't have a huge impact on on existing smokers but it stops new smokers from taking it up uh and so stopping young people from starting a tobacco habit is certainly an important goal of the medical association of public health in general um but in addition to that i think where that funding goes is important to voters um and i think this ballot measure is one that that voters will support the majority of that funding goes to medical rates we don't predefine in uh in the language how that goes it's going to be uh, determined by a state commission so some of it will go to hospital fees some of it will go to physician rates and others it will kind of be balanced out on where it's needed Mm -hmm. in the Medi-Cal system Um, but then some of some of the others go to increasing residency programming in the UC systems so by by funding more residency slots in the UCs Um, We'll get more physicians in California because part of that shortage is just straight not enough physicians in the state. Um, When medical when students are graduating medical school in California, over half of them have to leave the state and go to other states because there's just not enough residency slots for them to be trained. Mm -hmm. And what we have found is you're very likely to stay in the state and the community you are where you do your residency. Mm -hmm. So if we can increase residency slots here at UC San Diego, among others, excuse me we'll get more physicians in our cities, and our urban areas here in California.
1: Oh, and we can certainly use that. There's no doubt about it. I noticed that one of the other issues that you've worked on in the past is physician aid in dying issues. You know, we hear more and more about that um, than we ever did before, actually. What what did you work on and was there a consensus among the physicians that you were working with about that?
2: that was one of the issues that was in my portfolio when I when I was a lobbyist. Um, but frankly, I don't think we had any legislation for the time when I was a lobbyist. So okay. it was one that I, I was educating on and becoming familiar with, um, but never had a, a thing to deal with. In my other role as vice president of communications, though, I certainly dealt with it a lot in this last year. Um, and there was a large, there was a big effort at the Capitol this past year to change the law. Mm-hmm. Um, at CMA, we, you know, it, physician aid in dying um, is a controversial uh, issue among physicians. Uh, historically, medical associations have been opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, because of such a high-profile issue, again, we reopened the debate to physician leadership. Uh, and we worked on a lot of different ways to get a lot of physicians involved in it. Um, we opened up a, uh, a unique chat area on CMA's website for physicians from all over the state to offer opinions and get dialogue on. Um, in our annual, we changed the timing of our annual poll and had some questions on it, so we were te- polling our members on the subject. And with all these different, and then we had two different committees: an ethics commission, uh, as well as a council on legislation, both look and debate that issue. And then taking all of these pieces together, our board of trustees weighed those issues and had their own debate um, and then came up with a position. And what, what the CMA position uh, ended up becoming was neutral on the subject from a historically opposed position. Hmm. Uh, and that allowed... its movement. It, it's movement and it allowed CMA to work with the authors to um, construct language that was one that we were comfortable with and that physicians were comfortable with uh, doing So that, that bill eventually passed, um, was signed into law by the governor last year. Um, because of the way special sections work, uh, it didn't, the, the trigger on it taking effect didn't start until recently. And so that law actually becomes law of the land, I believe, June 7th this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, you know, my physicians here in date. San Diego, mm-hmm. among others, are looking at how that implementation is going to work and how physicians are going to practice that. And we don't know that yet. That's mm-hmm. going to be something that a lot of physicians are going to have to work on together mm-hmm. to come up with some protocols uh, in the most appropriate way to deal with that.
1: That will be very interesting to see how that actually plays out, you know, when, that, when it comes to reality. Um, what other top priority legislative issues do you see at this point?
2: Man, so the tobacco is a large one on the statewide front. You know, um, we
1: did, you just mentioned a minute ago that polling the physicians on the Affordable Care Act, how do they feel about it now?
2: <laughs> um, they have kind of changed with it over time. When, when I first uh, looked at my first polls at CMA on the subject, uh, physicians were very split on, on partisan lines. Republican physicians were strongly opposed to it. Democrat physicians were somewhat in favor, not quite as strong, but they were in favor of it. Mm-hmm. Um, once the Supreme Court finally upheld law, um, Several times. It, it came it came together. But the first big, big case mm-hmm. where it got upheld, um, later that year when we pulled it again, uh, physicians came to a point where they're two to one in support of oh. it. They certainly have problems with it. They're mm-hmm. concerned about implementation and how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the overall goal of expanding coverage to people and, and making more and more people, making sure that they have some mm-hmm. sort of coverage uh, is something that all physicians want.
1: Um, interesting, and so the question that I would have then is, if they could change one thing about it, what would it be?
2: <laughs> um, man, uh, you know, I just, I think what physicians really want to need, and something that we we talk about in general, is making sure that um, physicians have options in the way that they practice. Um, we're finding in a lot of communities, the the and, and certainly here in San Diego, um, it's getting harder and harder. To as an individual physician to have an individual practice or to have a small practice with two or three peers in a similar specialty, either you know two mm-hmm. or three other primary care docs uh, or a few others in, in your specialty, um, and and physician practices are kind of getting gobbled up. Sometimes that's fine if you want to work in a larger integrated system, that is great. But I but a physician shouldn't that shouldn't have to be their only choice, mm-hmm. um, and. And having those different models of practice, I think, is important for innovation. It helps. It helps for competition. and It helps for innovation. Both patients want those differences. They want the chance to to be in a more personal one-on-one relationship with their physician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes they appreciate the advantages that large integration brings as well. Um, and, and so I think you know the the concerns are that parts of the Affordable Care Act are going to push to that. A lot of the Affordable Care Act wasn't defined, mm-hmm. um, and this is. This is something that's very different in federal law versus state law. Federal laws are kind of big and broad, and then they go to, they go to departments and they start writing, you know, while the Affordable Care Act is a 1,000 pages, you know, tens of thousands of pages of regulations get built off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the state level, although you certainly have regulatory agencies and regulations, so much more of it is done specifically in the law. Um, where those laws will, you know, they dot the i's and cross the t's in the in the measure Absolutely. itself. Absolutely,
1: yes, yes, understand. Well, um, so here you are. You've been there three months um, okay. at the San Diego County Medical Society. What do you tell people are the benefits of membership? I mean, you, you know, your predecessor raised the membership levels, and here you are with a great track record in that area. What do you say to physicians, especially when they're not monolithic like you just described? There's the small practice and a large practice and, you know, different physicians want different things. What do you think is the the real value of joining?
2: So there, I think there's a few different things. And like I said, that value is different for different people. So kind of looking at it my way, I I think the first um, aspect of what we do, we're an advocacy association. Mm-hmm. Um, people join and, and what they expect from uh, their medical society, is to be advocates for physicians. Mm-hmm. And when they join me, they're joining CMA as well. So they're getting the lobbying in Sacramento, and we're a part of that, and, and we work together with that. Sometimes, you know, having our physicians contact their local legislators directly mm-hmm. uh, and doing other things to help make sure we're pushing uh, measures that I think are good for our healthcare system, good for patients in general. Um, but I, th- one of the things that I really want to focus on and, and my... President-elect and I have talked a lot about uh, at his upcoming retreat in May uh, is our local advocacy and making sure that we have some issues that we're focusing on here locally um, that I, my physician leaders have buy-in of. The the tobacco tax is going to be one even though it's a statewide effort mm-hmm. that my physicians uh, are very passionate about here. And so we're going to work on locally putting together our own efforts and our own campaign to help get that passed in November. Already, we're physicians are working to gather signatures on a volunteer basis here, and they've been collecting signatures um, to get that on the ballot. Wow! But then I think in the next steps, we'll do more of that. But then finding other measures to work on locally. Um, one of the things my current president has brought up um, as just refreshing and working on getting physicians involved uh, in an emergency response disaster system. Mm-hmm. Um, after having seen uh, frankly, this started with the attack in Paris, and and comes to light again, you know, after San Bernardino, and now Brussels. Um, you know, we we're we all have to be prepared um, for something like that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that preparation, I think, is getting the physician community involved. Uh, my current president uh, is Taiwanese American, and he's talked about the need to just find out what languages our physicians speak and who would be willing to volunteer and what are the many different um, languages in this community are going to be needed. So if a disaster happens, we can find uh, physicians who, who uh, speak Tagalog, who speak Mandarin, no matter what that is, certainly Spanish and other languages, um, and getting, that, getting a database of that together and getting that to the um, EMS system, mm-hmm. getting that to the county and the city um, so that something happens, we can all be ready to work together and do that.
1: Well, these are terrific goals that you have with your new president. I'm wondering, do you have any personal goals that you've set for yourself for this role?
2: Um, no, I, th- I think just reinvigorating physician, physician leadership, making sure my physicians are involved um, in the vision uh, of the society we have in moving forward. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that my, my incoming president is big on is partnerships. So I think after advocacy, the next is partnerships. Um, and and that, that can both lead for membership. Finding different things that can help my physician practices run better. Uh, finding businesses that can help kind of cut some red tape, redundancy, and hopefully save some cost for physicians so that they can be successful in running practice. But partnerships are also things that lead to the community. Uh, I met just two weeks ago at 211, um, mm-hmm. and seeing all of the social resources that 211 has is something that we want to loop into, particularly some of our smaller offices. Sure. Uh, if you're a patient uh, at at uh, at Scripps, um, and you're you're having some social welfare needs, they have specialists there who're going to do a pretty good job of helping put you in the right direction of that. But if I go to Doctor Smith's, you know, small office, and that same trouble is happening, I'm in danger of losing my health insurance. You might not have those resources as well but if we can partner 211 with that physician's office Mm -hmm. let the assistants in the physician's office know about the resources 211 has that's a great way that we can all work together and help you know hopefully improve the health of our community overall
1: it makes complete sense i mean 211 is such a resource for so many um different groups within the city and the the region of course so i think that's a great great deal of good sense you keep partnering with them um, y- and that's
2: just one example of many that that oh, i sure. want to focus on over the next few months
1: perfect uh, one of the things i wanted to ask is have you had any surprises so far has the weather not been as good as you'd hoped?
2: <laughs> well you asked that on a day where it's uh just started drizzling outside <laughs> yeah. uh but no it is uh it that's still pretty rare i'm i'm i still consider myself pretty blessed with the weather and and every time i've gotten into sacramento uh people comment jealously on the tan that i've uh that i've been able to take here out of san diego um you know there's been a lot more out and about in the community and out of the office than I than i thought originally which I love I, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm kind of I, I am an extrovert by nature uh, I like to meet people I like to work together and, and build relationships um, but it does make me remember and focus to make sure I, I don't let the piles on my desk grow too high uh, I take care of my day job and I have a great team at the medical society uh, but I make sure I listen to them and I take care of stuff when they need me to take care of it uh, as well as everything that I do out and about
1: well, that's perfect. Um, I, I'm going to end on on an odd note because I bet not many people know this about you, at least certainly our listeners, and just say that um, you're a poker player and a really, really, really good one.
2: Well, I, I certainly was at one point. Uh, poker is, I, I think, a, the way I think poker is like a sport or another skill is it's one they have to keep in practice. And during grad school, I didn't get a chance to do that a lot. But I'm I'm hoping to find a game here locally and and find some people uh, to to start doing that again it, uh, you know I enjoy it because there's just a large strategy part of it it, it takes a lot of patience and teaches me patience um, and, you know and it, it's a fun way to be competitive
1: well it you're a, a very interesting person thank you for sharing all this with us we really appreciate it I'm glad you came and I know our listeners would join me in wishing you the best for every success in your new role and thank you also to our listeners. Uh, if you would like to be notified of future podcasts, go to extension.ucsd.edu. Click on My Extension and provide your email address. And then feel free to send me suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear at Career Channel, all one word, at ucsd.edu. Until next time, this is Leslie Bruce. Here's to your health.